I guess you could say we're, we're, we're starting a new wing of our series called Knowing and Encountering God. If, if, um, I don't know if you remember hearing me say this, but this series is a little bit unique in the sense that it's got uh, two parts to it that, that revolve around Easter. And so the first part of this series that led up to Easter was all about, as you could probably guess, knowing God, where we really focused kind of specifically on who He is and looked at different attributes of God's um, nature each week. Uh, but the, uh, the wing or the leg of the series that we're starting today is really going to be um, zeroing in on an encounter with God and specifically how an encounter with God can change you. So I mentioned this uh, just kind of in passing on Easter, but, you know, as a pastor, obviously I get the chance to um, just to meet with people, and I feel like generally speaking, I actually know this for a fact, people have a tendency to, to open up to pastors for whatever reason. There's been a number of times when people have shared things with me that they said they've, you know, never shared with anybody else. And most of the people that I've met outside of the faith, uh, in my experience, most people outside the faith are not really hostile toward it or angry about it, although I know certainly there are people that are, are like that. I'm just saying most of the people that I've talked to outside the faith, they're not necessarily... Um, you know, violently opposed to it. They're simply indifferent toward it. It's this mindset that says, you know, I, I get how that helps some people, and parts of it might even be good for a given society. I just don't see what difference it makes in my life. I don't really think I need it. That's not a question of, um, of you know, anger and vitriol. That's really just a question of indifference. It's, it's really, it's, it's a question of relevancy. What difference does this make in my life? And, and really, I think that um, that mindset can be just as pervasive, even in Christians, that it, that's an, it's entirely possible uh, you know, as a born-again believer, uh, to try to reduce Christianity to just this really insignificant segment of your life. It's five minutes in the morning before you get up and go what you got to do. It's, a, it, you know, it's an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday before we go about our lives as usual. And, and really that mindset is what I'd like to address specifically in the next weeks. So to do that, we're going to be looking at um, case studies of people recorded in Scripture who had encounters with God that changed them, deeply personal, life-changing encounters with God and as we look at each one of these case studies, uh, I'm, I'm actually very confident that you're going to find them not only interesting and, and encouraging, but relevant. Because these case studies have been preserved for us um, in order to show us how an encounter with God can change us in ways that I am totally positive every single person listening to this wants to change. So let me forecast that the weeks ahead and just kind of give you an idea of what to expect if you decide to, you know, ride along for this series. We're going to talk about how an encounter with God can heal you from the pain of a dysfunctional childhood. We're going to talk about how an encounter with God can fill your life with a sense of purpose even when you feel like your best years are behind you and your potential's been wasted. Uh, we're going to look at how an encounter with God can... Um, how do I phrase this? Prevent you from being crushed by the expectations that other people try to saddle you with. I'm sure that one hits home for a number of people. We're going to talk about how an encounter with God can get you through the hardest, darkest times of your life. I'm sure that there's people listening to me right now. That's exactly where you are. We're going to look at how an encounter with God can break through the natural hardness of the heart, kind of get you out of yourself and really give you a heart for people. I've talked to a lot of people who say, I want to love people, I just don't. We're going to talk about how an encounter with God can do that. And, uh, and, and by the end of this series, we're going to talk about how an encounter with God can help you deal with your own mortality, can help you look at dead in the eye uh, and end your race that the Bible um, calls life well. And I think one thing that everybody has in common is, is we are, we're all looking for the answers to those kinds of questions. And so my hope is that you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll saddle up for this series because um, I think you're going to find, as we go through these case studies in Scripture, that at least one of these is, it's going to hit you right where you live. Uh, and, you know, my, my firm conviction is that the Bible really is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has a way of just meeting people exactly where they are all these thousands of years later. Um, but today, as we start this kind of new wing of this series that's all about encounters with God, instead of looking at a particular case study, what I wanted to do is lay the foundation for all that we're going to be talking about in the weeks and months ahead by really explaining exactly what we mean when we talk about an encounter with God. And to do that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Let me read it to you, and then we'll, we'll get into it. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. 
and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. What we're looking at uh, today is it's, a, it's actually a prayer of Paul. And it's a prayer um, in which Paul is, is asking on behalf of the Ephesians, he's praying that God would give these Ephesian people that he so loved exactly what we're talking about in this series, which is a deeply personal, life-changing encounter with God. And what I, what I want to do is take some time to, to, uh, to kind of highlight what this prayer shows us about, first off, the necessity of an encounter with God, number two, the anatomy of an encounter with God, number three, uh, how we can receive one. So first off, I, I, I want to just look uh, primarily at what this shows us about the necessity of an encounter with God. Um, when you zoom out from this prayer, one of the things that's kind of curious about it is that this prayer is not, this is not a prayer that Paul prayed when he was open air preaching in the Areopagus in Athens to skeptics. This is a prayer that is embedded in a letter that was written to a church. So in, in other words, it's a prayer for Christians, which seems obvious, but when you realize that, a number of questions come to the surface. Because if you look at what Paul is asking for, for these Christians, there's, there's at least three requ requests in here that are kind of noteworthy. He prays first off um, that they, that they uh, would have the Messiah dwell in their hearts. Secondly, that they would know the love of Jesus. Thirdly, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the reason that's curious is because there's a lot of other places in the New Testament, and a lot of them are actually written by Paul himself, that clearly state that every single follower of Jesus already has all of that the very moment they give their life to Jesus. Christianity is not like this kind of tiered system where if you do enough spiritual exercises, you'll get to having Jesus in your heart. It's something that happens the very moment that you put your trust in him. So here's the question. Why is it that Paul would be praying that these Christians get something that Scripture says they already have? And there can only really be one answer to this. The only possible answer is that it, it must be possible to have something, spiritually speaking, it must be possible to have something in your possession without being possessed by what you have. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for here, that what the Ephesian believers already have would become so real to them that it would change the way they live. Now, let me just draw two implications from the way this prayer is kind of worded and situated uh, before we move on from this idea that are deeply relevant for us. First off, um, Paul, you notice, he's praying this for all the Christians in Ephesus, which, just so you're aware, the way that it worked back then, when Paul wrote a letter to a church, they would read it, they would study it, they'd be encouraged by it, and they'd get passed along to all the different churches in a given region. So, so notice, first off, that Paul is praying for all the Ephesians, not just one or two kind of oddball Christians that really just don't seem to get it. He's praying for everybody. That should tell us that this problem that Paul is, 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 is praying over, uh, this is the normal situation of the heart for believers. In other words, most Christians, according to the Bible, what this prayer is saying is most Christians live most of their lives in the situation that, that Paul is praying God would break them out of. Meaning most of us, and we all, our hearts naturally revert back to this, we have this tendency to live most of our lives not living in light of what is really true about us, not really enjoying and living in the freedom of what we already have. So if you've been at this church for any length of time, you've probably heard me use this story before. I want to reuse it here because it just works so perfectly. This is a true story um, of a man named Louis Delcour. Louis Delcour was a, uh, a, a young French soldier in the First World War. He overstayed his leave uh, and fearing the shame of, of going AWOL, he just decided, I'm going to desert altogether. So he went to his mom's house, because where else are you going to go? And he convinced his mom to take him in, to shelter him, basically to hide him. And so she agreed because, you know, what else is mom going to do? She decided uh, to shelter her son, Louis, and she hid him in the attic of her home for 21 years. True story. 
So in August of 1937, uh, Louis' mom died, and he knew at that point that the jig was up, and he might as well just come clean. So he kind of stumbled out of the house. You can imagine he's this pallid, haggard old man. He goes to the first police officer he can find, and he turns himself in for desertion. The police officer looked him in the eye, absolutely astonished. He said, sir, I don't know where you've been that you haven't heard, but a law of amnesty for deserters was passed years ago. Not, he said, not only are you free, but you've been free for years. Now, the point of that story is, is Delcor, Louis Delcor, he had access to something that absolutely should have changed the way that he lived, which was his freedom. It didn't change the way that he lived. He wound up living this kind of small, cramped, miserable shell of the life that he could have had, not because he didn't have his freedom, but because he didn't realize what he had. And the fact that this prayer is something that Paul prayed over all believers, and the fact that God saw fit to record this in his word for us, is really a reminder to all of us that that's the normal state of the heart if we're not careful. That more often than not, when, when we go through life and we're not seeing you know, the, the, the deep character change that we want to see, when we, when we don't see ourselves abounding in things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control, when we don't see, you know, bitterness and envy and anxiety and self-pity and all those kind of things being broken in our lives, the root cause behind all of that is exactly what Paul's praying for here. It's not that we don't have something we don't need. It's simply that we don't realize what we have. That's the first implication. The second one is found in, in, in the way Paul prays. You notice in verse 14... He doesn't just tell the Ephesians, I'm praying for you. He says in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He says, I'm not just praying. I'm, I'm, on, my, I'm on my knees about this. I'm kneeling before the Father. I was reading a commentary this week, and it pointed out that in the Bible, kneeling always has the connotation of, of fervency, of, of uh, urgency, of almost desperation. So if, if you were the recipient of this letter some 2,000 years ago and Paul says, I am kneeling before God the Father on your behalf to get you this one thing, what he's basically saying is I'm desperate above all else. I don't care about anything else. This is the one thing that you need more than anything. And I'm on my knees desperate to see God unloaded in your life. Now that, to me, is pretty remarkable when you consider all that the Ephesian Christians were dealing with. I actually was telling the 9 a.m., uh, just out of curiosity this week, I decided to look at every prayer recorded, because, because Paul has prayers like this in almost every one of his 13 New Testament letters. And, and I basically just cut and pasted them, uh, put them in a Word document, and highlighted and read the specific things that he asked for. And I just wanted to read it in one sitting. It, felt, it fits in about a page and a half. It was really wild. It was eye-opening and, frankly, pretty convicting to me when I read all of Paul's prayers at once. And there's a couple of implications you can draw from it, but here's the thing that, that hit me in the face. Not a single time, literally not a single time, did Paul pray for a change in the external circumstances of the people that he wrote New Testament letters to. Not once. Now, now consider for a minute what every man, woman, and child in Ephesus in the first century were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. All right, first off, in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, you're always dealing with, and this is everybody, you're always dealing with sickness and plague, you're always dealing with famine and hunger, and you're, and you're dealing with the constant threat of invading tribes, warfare. That's a day-to-day that's a -day occurrence for the people Paul's writing to. But on top of that, as people that have gone public with their faith to the point that they identify as a community of believers that Paul can write this letter to, persecution had already ramped up against Christians. Christians were already dying by this point in history, some of them at the hands of Paul before he himself became a Christian, and history tells us that it was going to continue to escalate for about 200 years. Every single person Paul wrote this letter to was staring down the barrel of that. Paul doesn't pray for any of it. The only thing Paul prays for is that they would have this life-changing encounter with the love of God. Now, think about what's really being implied here. Basically, what, what, what Paul is saying to the, to the Ephesians and what God's word is saying to us some 2,000 years later is you think you know what your problem is. And we do, right? We all think that we know what our problem is. I think I know what my biggest problems are. They're the things that command most of my worry, most of my bitterness, most of my mental energy, most of my emotional exhaustion. And we always think the problem's outside of us. What, what Paul is kind of implying here is you think you know the biggest problems in your life. You think it's a financial problem. You think it's a professional problem. You think it's a relational problem. You think it's a, a physical problem. And if that problem is dealt with, then you could be happy. Then you could be whole. Then life could begin. Then you could finally rest. Then you'd be enough. And what he's saying in this prayer is, you're wrong. 
Basically, Paul is saying, I'm praying for you to get the one thing that if you just get this one thing, you'll be able to handle anything. That's how important this is. That's how important an encounter with God is. From there, I think this lends itself to the question, okay, so what's an encounter with God? So we talked about the necessity of it. Let's talk about the anatomy of it. What, what are we talking about when we talk about an encounter with God? And of course, it's a very difficult thing to perfectly nail down and define because, as anybody who's lived the Christian life for any length of time knows, encounters with God have a way of manifesting themselves in different ways in different believers' lives. That being said, when you look at the specific requests, I just want to pull out two of them, the specific requests that Paul makes in this prayer, and you kind of dig into them a little bit, there's two vital pieces of information that this gives us about an encounter with God. It'll tell us, first off, where an encounter with God needs to take place. I know that probably sounds strange to you, but we'll walk through it. Secondly, it'll tell us what specifically an encounter with God involves. So first off, where does an encounter with God, where does it need to take place? And you see the answer to this in verse 16. Paul says, I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, here it is, in the inner man through his spirit. Uh, So the inner man, or some of your versions probably translate that um, inner being, all that is, is it's uh, it's a synonym for the heart. And it's really important to understand what the Bible's talking about when it talks about your heart because it uses that word much differently than we tend to in our culture. For instance, a lot of times you'll hear people make a distinction between, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but people will will kind of make a distinction between the head, the hands, and the heart. So when people talk about the head, they're talking about the intellect. They're talking about your thoughts. When they talk about the heart, they're talking about your emotions, you know, your desires, your feelings. When we talk about the hands, they're talking about your actions, your behavior. When the Bible uses, every time you see the word heart, specifically in the New Testament, uh, it's talking, it, 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 the Bible does not make that distinction. When it talks about your heart, it's talking about something far deeper than that. It's talking about basically the core of your being and the control center that determines all three areas of your life, your head, your hands, and your heart. So here, here's what I want to do. I don't think I've ever done this before. I'm actually going to put the definition of a Greek word on the TVs for you today. We're going to define the Greek word that appears heart in your Bible. So you speak Greek after today. We're all going to be geniuses. I didn't even put the Greek word up there. It's just the definition of it. When, it, when you see the word heart in the Bible, and this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about your inner being, it's talking about the fountain and seat of, and there's seven things listed here, the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. What I, what I want to draw your attention to is that those seven areas that, that the heart is the fountain or the seat of, if you, if you pay real careful attention, those seven things can be broadly lumped into three different categories, your intellect, your emotion, and your will. In other words, your cognition, your emotion, and your volition. Here's what I mean. First off, we see that the heart is the fountain and seat of the thoughts. Now, obviously, that's talking about your intellect, the things that you think about the arguments that you find rational and plausible. This feels a whole lot like a lecture kind of setting now, whatever. Secondly, we see the, the, the heart is the fountain and seat of four things, passions, desires, appetites, and affections. Now, what that's talking about is what we, you know, kind of classically call the emotions, you know, the desires. It's talking about the things that right now you are orienting your life around. Even if you don't know exactly what those things are, that's dealing with you know, the things that you've told yourself, if I just get my hands on that, if I can get, just get to that place in life, then I'll be happy, then I'll be whole, then I'll know that I arrived, then I'll know that I made it, then I can finally rest. And then lastly, the heart is also the fountain of the purposes and endeavors. And what that's dealing with, it's not really dealing with the mind or necessarily the emotions, that's dealing with the will. That's dealing with the, the, the decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis that ultimately determine the course of your life. So so here's my point. When Paul prays for you to have this encounter in your inner being, what he's saying is that this this encounter that he's praying for, it needs to take place in the absolute core of who you are, in the part of you that determines what you think about, what you dream about, and what you do about it. Now, why would I burn all all these calories? I mean, I could have just read this and said, you know, your your inner being is kind of the core of who you are, and then we we move on. Why burn all these calories defining this word? Here's why I think this is so important. 
when you realize what Paul is praying for here, when you realize what he's saying about where an encounter with God needs to take place, this winds up being a challenge to everybody. Because what every single one of us naturally wants to do, you can see this in, in individual Christians, you can see this in, even in individual churches, I think, if you really zoom out far enough, what we all naturally want to do is try to reduce Christianity to just one of these three realms. So let me kind of walk through that. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of person who, you know, they're all about sound doctrine, as though that is the only thing that matters in life. And, and, and these, you know, the people that kind of fit into this category, they're all about, you know, give me deep teaching, give me Greek words, they probably love that, give me Greek words, give me Bible studies, give me great classes, let me, let me get more information and more information and more information, but it never really translates to them being a person who's more loving or more kind or more gentle or more generous. It's just all about lording that knowledge over other people and, and you know, kind of, you know, swinging it like a weapon where Paul talks about knowledge can puff up, it's love that builds up. So what, what is that? What that is, it's a version of Christianity that just stays in the mind. It doesn't go anywhere else. And what Paul is saying in this prayer here is you need, of course you need sound doctrine. Of course you need objective truth. Of course you need scripture. You just need something more than that. You need it to, to, to not just stay in your mind. All right, then you have other kinds of people who, you know, not necessarily overly concerned about objective truth. They just want a, a personal, transcendent, emotional, inspiring, majestic worship experience. You know, I'll feel like it's successful if I can walk away and I have tears in my eyes. Let's not get bogged down with doctrine and dogma and who's right and who's wrong because that might hurt somebody's feelings and, it, you know, people start feeling excluded and all that kind of stuff. Well, the problem with that is it's an emotional experience that never really leads to life change. It's not based on any kind of foundation of objective truth, and so it never leads to repentance. It's just an emotional high for the sake of getting an emotional high. And what Paul would say again in this prayer is you need something more than that. Right, and then you have people that have a tendency to approach maybe religion generally or the Bible specifically like it's primarily a rule book. And the mindset is, just tell me what I need to do so that I can live a good life and live a wise life. And then I can feel good about myself and God has to answer my prayers and he has to save me and he has to, you know, I can put him in my debt through my morality. And what that is, again, that's a Christianity that just stays in the will. What Paul is saying here is that real Christianity doesn't stay in any one of those areas of your life. It engages and it transforms all three of them at once. If you were to ask Paul, or more importantly, if you were to ask Jesus, you know, what, what is this belief system, you know, modeled after you, Jesus? Uh, is this a belief system primarily of the intellect, of the emotion, or of the will? Jesus would say yes. It does not pick and choose. So what Paul's praying for, and, and what you and I, according to Scripture, need more than anything else, is a Christianity that's not reduced to mere intellectualism, mysticism, or moralism. It goes deeper than all three of those. It engages and transforms all of those areas of our lives, head, hands, and heart at once. Here's the question I have if I were you. What on earth is powerful enough to do that? What on earth is powerful enough to at the same time engage, satisfy, and transform your head, your hands, and your heart? The answer comes in verse 17. And what we're really looking at here is, is what, if you ask the question, well, what does, it, what does an encounter with God really involve? Here's what it involves. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, here it is, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that you would be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in your inner being to do exactly one thing and one thing only, which is to comprehend the love that God has for you in Jesus. Now, this is the way my mind works. When I see a, a prayer that is so obviously, singularly focused on this one thing, the question that, I, that my mind immediately goes to is, why, why just the love of God? And, and, and you, you can't even say that this is just an isolated prayer. I mean, if you survey the New Testament, there seems to be an almost undue emphasis on love as central to what Christianity is. For instance, it's in the New Testament we learn that God is love. 
You know, which is, as a side note, even in our kind of skeptical secular culture, a lot of people, even if they don't believe in the God of the Bible, they'll, they'll say, well, if, I, if there is a God out there, he's got to be a God of love. You know where that idea came from? The Bible. Christians said that God is love long before anybody else. You didn't get that from the Roman pantheon. Nobody thought Zeus was love. That came from Scripture. So the New Testament tells us God is love. Uh, it, it reminds us that the only way, the only, the only reason we love God is because he first loved us. Paul himself tells us that it's God's love or his kindness that actually leads us into repentance. Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, hours before his crucifixion, he said, by this you will know, all uh, people will know that you're my disciples. The qualifying mark of discipleship to Jesus, according to himself, he said, is the love that you have for one another. And then, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, in the end, there's going to be faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The question is, why is there such a focus on love? Why is Paul praying like that's your primary need in life? And I think I have the answer. This admittedly is speculation, but see if you don't agree with this. See, see if this doesn't make sense to you. You take every attribute of God, and we talked about a number of them prior to Easter. Take every attribute of God, his holiness, power, creativity, beauty, omnipotence, transcendence, imminence, all of them. You hold all of them up alongside love, and here's what you'll find. Every other attribute of God can amaze you. They can impress you. Some of them will terrify you, and a lot of them will confuse you. Only the love of God can transform you. If God was everything that he is, but he didn't love you and he didn't love me, we're out in the cold. We, we have no chance of being transformed. We should cower. We should run as fast and far as we can from this God. It is his love and his love alone that transforms us. And what Paul is saying here in this prayer, you want to talk about an amazing statement. Paul is saying every problem that you have in your life Every problem will find its solution in the love of God. In other words, every problem you have will be solved. You'll get through it. You'll be okay if you can come to understand this love even more than you used to. Let me just walk through that because I know that's a, you know, to me that kind of bears some teasing out. But ask yourself the question. Just take some of the commands of Jesus. How are you going to love? You ever think about Jesus commanding, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? How, how are you going to do that or at least grow in that? You're just going to decide that your, your, your heart's going to love God more? It's not how the human heart works. How are you going to love your neighbor as yourself? How are you going to love your enemies, like Jesus said, the people that have caused you the most pain? Or, or, or make it personal. How are you going to deal with bitterness, the bitterness that lurks in your own heart that you don't want? I mean, nobody likes being bitter. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with your own envy? How are you going to deal with your own pride? How are you going to deal with your own anxiety about what lies ahead of you? How are you going to deal with the lingering self, you know, this iceberg of self-centeredness that I think all of us quietly senses, you know, you're just going to decide to stop being self-centered, to stop putting yourself at the center of your life? I'd have done that a long time ago if I could simply push that button. How are you going to trust God? This is where some of us are right now. How are you going to trust God enough to obey him when obedience to him is terrifying and violates every intuition that you have? You know, some of us are probably in a place where you like where you are and God's saying move and you don't want to. How are you going to trust him enough to move? Conversely, some of us might be in a place you don't like where you are at all, but you know God's telling you to stay. How are you going to have the strength to stay? How are you going to, ha how are you going to trust him enough to, to continually hand the reins of your life over to him? Or let's just get as practical as we can get. How are you going to face the disappointment, pain, suffering, loss, hardship of this life and ultimately your own mortality with any kind of confidence, peace, and poise, the answer to every single one of those questions and countless more is found right here in this prayer. You need to know the love that you thought you knew more than you used to know it. It's a mouthful. If that sounds, if that sounds boring to you or reductionistic to you, or but yeah, but can't we move on from that once we get the basics? The only reason that sounds that way to us is because our hearts are so naturally cold and callous and shriveled because of sin, and we don't realize how vast this love is, which is why, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, you notice Paul, when he prays that you'd know this love, he refers, it, uh, he refers to it as a kind of love that surpasses knowledge. You hear that irony there? Paul's saying, I'm praying that you can know something that you'll never fully know. He's saying, yeah, sure, you can know the love of Jesus. You just need to know that there's always more to know. And so to answer our question kind of head on, what is, a, what is an encounter with God? What does it actually involve? What's the, what's the, the material? What's the, the substance, the essence? Here's what it is. The encounter with God 
that Paul's praying for that is recorded in Scripture because God the Father desires for you to have it, the encounter with God we're talking about is an experience in which the love of Jesus becomes more real, more important, and more foundational to you than anything else in your life. It supersedes your need for your parents' approval, your children's behavior, your career success, your financial status, your physical appearance. It drowns out all of that. And the way that you know this is beginning to happen is those other things or, or a, you know, a countless list of other things, they just lose their hold on you. They stop driving you through life like a taskmaster, you know, nipping at your heels, telling you every day, get up and justify your existence. They stop plaguing you with anxiety because you know if they pass through your hands, if God leads you in uncharted territory, it doesn't matter. It's a profoundly freeing experience. And what happens, according to Paul, is what happens when you, when you experience this love is you experience fullness. Paul's saying every, every human soul is a container. It's just a question of, is yours filled with what it's meant to be filled with? When it's filled with the love of Jesus, the needs are met. They're satisfied. They don't motivate anymore. You can finally just be. That sounds pretty good. How about we just do that, guys? <laughs> now, in saying that, I actually want to speak to this before I move on, because we're getting ready to hit the last leg of this. There's probably a chance that a number of people hear what I'm talking about, and, and you know you have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, and, and maybe you're, you're discouraged because you're thinking, man, I can't even remember the last time I even approached something like that. And I would say, if that's where you're coming from, that should not discourage you. If anything, this prayer should encourage you. Because evidently, the Ephesians hadn't experienced this in a long time either, or Paul wouldn't be praying for it to happen. And I'll tell you, regardless of what anybody says, I don't believe any follower of Jesus experiences this of course, not all the time. I don't even think regularly. But the fact that this prayer is preserved for us in God tells us, and this should give you great hope, that these experiences are available. They're available. So last question here. Here it is. How do we get them? Uh, I think this teaching would largely be a waste of time unless we ended by addressing this. Now, before I even go down this road, I'm going to give you four answers to that question. But before I go down this road, let me just, I'm walking a theological tightrope because it is definitely inappropriate to believe that there's just a bunch of buttons we can hit, spiritually speaking, and God's going to, you know, part the skies kind of thing. That being said, when you look at this prayer, it does give us practical things that we can do that lend itself to the encounter with God that Paul's talking about here. And so what I, what I see is really four elements that kind of create the, the environment in which these encounters with God happen. Um, the, the first one is really more of a mindset that we need to have as we walk through the other three. But let me give all four, four of them to you here. This is what it boils down to. It's an issue of authority, dependency, activity, and community. I wanted to make them all kind of sound the same. I worked really hard on that. I hope you like it. <laughs> authority, dependency, activity, and community. So this first one... We'll walk through this. And like I said, this first one's more of a mindset, although there, there is action to be taken here. When we talk about authority, um, look at how Paul addresses God here before he even gets into the prayer. He says, and I don't know that this is mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. He says, I'm kneeling before the Father. Now, plenty of places in Scripture talk about God being a Father. But then it's almost like a needless detail. Of course, nothing in Scripture is needless. He says, this is a father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I don't know that there's another place in Scripture that says exactly that about God. Here's why that's significant. In the Bible, in, in Paul's culture, but, but really in New and Old Testament, um, naming someone carried with it the connotation of having authority over them. That's why so often when you see in, in the Old Testament, God the Father, in the New Testament, God the Son, when God begins a work in an individual's life, he so often begins that work by changing their name because that's basically saying, I'm giving you a new identity, and out of that identity, I'm carving out a new trajectory of your life. You're following me now. You're coming with me. Uh, it, it's an act of, of authority. Basically, what this means for us, the fact that Paul went out of his way to remind the Ephesians, that's who this God is. He's the God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What this means for us is that if you want to have the life-changing encounter with God that we've talked about this morning, that begins with accepting the reality and the authority of God. It means allowing him to name you. Now, modern people like us do not like that. 
we are living in what sociologists uh, pretty much universally say is the most individualistic society in the history of mankind. And, and as a direct result of that kind of hyper-individualism, we are, you see this everywhere you look now, almost allergic to authority. We are almost allergic to the idea that anybody could possibly get to call the shots in my life like I'm not a sovereign, autonomous self. And so what modern people have a tendency to do, and I'm not looking down on modern people because I see this tendency in my own heart, what we all have a tendency to do as, as products of our culture to a greater degree, degree than we realize is we try to name God. We try to create God in our image instead of accepting the fact that he's created us in his. And so we'll, we'll kind of decide, you know, I like to think of God like this. You hear that phrase all the time. Or, or even believers do this. You know, Thomas Jefferson, I've, I've told you before, he, he very famously took a penknife to his Bible. He cut out every verse that he didn't like or didn't understand. What he was left with is the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. In doing that, he didn't just create a new Bible. He created his own version of God. And there's all kinds of believers who do that. I like what God says here. I'll take these commands seriously. This doesn't make as much sense to me. He can't actually mean that he wants me to be generous or practice chastity or whatever it is. So what you're doing there, you're trying to name God. Now, here's, here's the nice part of naming God or creating God in your own image and kind of domesticating and taming and, you know, all that with God. The nice part of that is a God like that will never challenge you, right? He's never going to cause you to rethink any of your positions or your convictions or your beliefs. He's certainly not going to knock you down and call you to repent. He'll never challenge you. The downside is a God like that can never change you. Of course, he can't change you. He's not real. He's just a projection of yourself. And so what Paul is saying first and foremost here is if you want to have a life-changing encounter with God, don't bother, don't bother creating God in your own image. A God that is a projection of you cannot do for you what Paul is saying the one true God will do for you. So first off, this is an issue of authority. I'm preaching a little bit now. <laughs> Doesn't happen all the time, but I got some fire in the furnace about that one for whatever reason. Probably because I know how, how often I've done that in my life. Stupid young Ryan. But now I got it all figured out, guys. <laughs> first, I laughed at that. Interesting. Okay, all right, noted. Um, so the first, it's an issue of authority. The next three are basically what we do in light of the first one. The second element you see here uh, is, is number two, it's an issue of dependency. All right, the, 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 the whole basis of this passage is that it's not enough. It's not enough to know that God loves you, that Jesus loves you. Uh, you know, with your mind, it has to become real to you. So note, though, that in light of that, Paul did not offer the Ephesians the seven habits of highly spiritual people. He offered them a prayer. And the very first words of this prayer, verse 16, I pray that God may grant you. What does that mean? It means what you and I have to understand about these encounters with God is that they're encounters that God himself has to grant us. It is absolutely incorrect to believe that through skill and technique and knowledge, if I can just kind of, you know, enter the right spiritual code, boom, God showers his presence on me and I'm, you know, walking on water kind of thing. It doesn't work like that. Now, it's something that we depend on God for, and the way that we practice that dependency is, is prayer, is my point. Now, pausing here, and I'm going to move on to the next one, activity, but before I do, let me just point this out. If I ended here, and I just talked about the dependency, then there would be a, maybe you'd go home and you'd think that what I'm saying is, okay, so tomorrow morning you get up and you hit your knees and you raise your hands and you say, hit me, God. And then you wait a few seconds. And if nothing happens, you say, all right, maybe next time, right? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> That's not how this works. It is, this is the tightrope I'm walking. It is equally as incorrect to believe on the one hand that I can manipulate God into giving me an encounter with himself. It is equally as incorrect to believe that as it is, on the other hand, to believe that I'm supposed to just walk through life with passive resignation, hoping that one day I hit the spiritual lottery and God unloads on me. I could read you so many quotes, and I have before, of people who have experienced historically the God of the Bible show up in their life for them as they were showing up for him. And this brings us to the next element here. You have authority, you have dependency, but thirdly, you have activity. If you, if you pay careful attention to this prayer, and, and bear with me because we're almost done here. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would strengthen you, but to strengthen you to do something. It's found in verse 18. He prays that you may be 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, you may be able to comprehend the love of Jesus. Now, that word, comprehend, real funny Greek word, because when you hear comprehend, you think, you know, you think all intellectual. Just, you know, think about it until it makes more sense to you, kind of analyze it like it's this abstract concept. The Greek word for comprehend here, katalambano, is a word that means to grab somebody, throw them to the ground, and rob them. When it was used corporately, it referred to, you know, a group of people sacking a city and stealing everything of value out from its midst. Paul's saying, that's how you have to approach not Jesus, but the love of Jesus. Here's what that means. And see if this isn't convicting to some of us. This is about as practical as I can get. I don't know any Christian that doesn't want what Paul's praying for here, but here's how a lot of us have a tendency to approach, say, Scripture reading. It's one thing to approach the Bible, and, and you know, you, I mean, only you know if you're doing this, but I certainly know when I've done it, where you're just kind of moving your eyes across the words until you get to the chapter break. And now you can say, all right, I did my good deed today. Maybe that'll give me a pick-me-up, and God will bless me, whatever it is, right? That's one way to approach the Bible. You can also approach the Bible, take like Psalm 23. It's this beautiful piece of poetry. It's one thing to approach a passage like Psalm 23 like you're standing in a museum looking at a work of art. You know, you're admiring it, but from a distance. You know, you're just kind of gazing at its beauty. You're sort of um, in an intellectual, abstract way kind of admiring it. It's one way to approach Scripture like that. It's another thing entirely to approach a passage of Scripture, say a psalm, knowing that spiritually speaking, you are dying of hunger and you are exposed to the elements and the truth that God has preserved for you in his word is the sustenance and shelter that you need in order to survive. And so you go after it with this, this kind of grasping that Paul talks about here and you grab the truths that God has put in his word about himself and about yourself and you hold on to them until it's driven from your mind to your heart because you know you're gonna starve, you're gonna die exposed to the elements if it doesn't become real to your heart. Two wildly different ways of approaching Scripture. Dependency and activity. And I'll tell you, that the, the, the best illustration I can offer to kind of highlight this balance, I've shared this with you before, I think. About 10 years ago, I went to New Smyrna Beach with a number of my family members. I'd never gone before, and it was a really pivotal time in my life. It was when I was considering moving out of the fire department to pursue ministry full-time. So I, I just had a lot of thoughts. I needed to get my head cleared and so what I did every day, every morning of this vacation, and I realized this does not sound like a vacation to everybody else, but to each his own, I would get up at 5 a.m. every morning at the beach. I've already lost a lot of people, but this is what I did. Get up at 5 a.m., I put on a pot of coffee, this part's cool, and I would walk out into the Atlantic Ocean, and I would drink coffee and watch the sunrise. Amen indeed. Uh, I, that was such a... Just a, the only way, I, I, would, I would just call it a settling experience in my life because this is how God speaks to me. When I was standing in that body of water that's bigger than I can fathom and I got this, you know, burning ball, of, I don't know why it hasn't burned out yet, but somebody explained it one time and it didn't make any sense to me. Seeing that ball of light rise in the sky, all that did was remind me how big God actually is and how small by the grace of God I am and how small my baggage and my burdens and my problems actually are in light of this God. He's been fine without me. And even if I make a mess of my life, it's not riding on me. It was just a profoundly settling experience. So anyway, for the last 10 years, every time I vacation on the Atlantic coast, I've, I've done that. It's harder now that I have four kids, but at least one morning when I'm staying on the Atlantic coast, I'll get myself up, I'll get my coffee, and I'll go stand on the ocean. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. This is the point. In 10 years of doing that, more than half the time, I have been denied the experience that I wanted. Meaning, more than half the time, I've gotten myself up, gotten my coffee, stood in the ocean, and there was too much cloud cover that day to actually see the sun rise in the sky. And it's just not the same. You know, seeing the sun peek through the clouds like a couple of, you know, inches over the horizon from my perspective, it's not the same as seeing that, you know, that glowing thumbnail rise on the water. And so every time that happens, there's too much cloud coverage, of course I'm upset, but I accept that because I know that there's nothing that I can do to make the clouds part. There's nothing that I can do to make the sun rise. There's nothing I, I can do to create that experience. What I can do is put myself in a position to experience the light, the beauty, the warmth of the sun when and not if it happens. That balance is exactly what Paul is striking in this prayer. 
that on the one hand, we depend completely on God in prayer, realizing that the only way you'll have an encounter with him is if he grants it to you. Yet on the other hand, we grasp with the means of grace, doing everything we can to drive the truth from our heads to our hearts so that we're ready for it when God arrives. Authority, dependency, activity. Last one here is community. I don't know if you caught this, but in, in verse 18, when Paul prays that you would comprehend this, he's not praying that you would, you would comprehend this in isolation. He says, I, I, I'm praying that you would comprehend with all the saints the love that Jesus has for you. I, I read this quote to you. I love this quote. Um, I actually read this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's from William Holland. He, uh, this is the, the moment that he had an encounter with God, the moment that he was brought into the family of God. Here's how he described it. He says, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. I love that quote because it, it powerfully highlights what we're talking about today. But what I would draw your attention to is what happened leading up to it. Because if you read William Holland's testimony, what happened was he and a friend of his, Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, the two of them had what maybe a number of people listening to me right now have, which is a merely intellectual understanding of God. They knew a lot of stuff about him, but they decided if this God is real, they said, we want to experience him as a lived reality, and they decided to seek him together. And so they got their hands on Martin Luther's commentary of the book of Galatians. At the front of that commentary, he summarizes the entire message of Galatians. And William Holland's testimony, the, the testimony I just read, he said that it was only when he heard the message of the gospel out of the mouth of his friend, only when he heard his friend read the gospel to him, only then did it break through the hardness of his heart and transform his life. And that is so often the way that God decides to work. And so what what does that mean for us? It means, of course, you you should seek God individually and personally and privately. But the clear teaching of all of Scripture is that You will never know God in isolation like you can know him in a community of your brothers and sisters who are also seeking to know him. You need community. You need the church. Authority, dependency, activity, and community. All right, uh, we're just about at the end here. What I wanted to do um, at the end of this teaching, because it's been pretty intellectual and conceptual and all that kind of stuff, I wanted to end on about as personal a note as I... um, as I can. So I'm going to let you all the way into my life. In other words, as we end today, let's get weird. (laughs) I'll call the worship team up because we're actually done today. So March 16th in 2013 um, is what I consider to be one of the most important moments of my life because that evening I experienced what Paul is, is praying for here. And all of these elements necessary to lay the groundwork for a relationship or an encounter with God, all of them were present in my life uh, for over a year prior to that. I mean, there was wrestling with who God really is. There was dependency. There was activity. There was, you know, faithful people that God had brought into my life to give me the right ideas and, and uh, the right thoughts at, at the right time. But it all led up to March 16th, 2013, um, when I had something that I really haven't had anything like since. I, uh, I was renting the bottom of a split foyer, and I was home alone one night, and I got out my guitar, and I started worshiping God. And I was singing this song that really means a lot to me. It's called How He Loves. Uh, It's a song to this day. If my wife hears me sing it, she cries every single time. There I was that night, and uh, the way that the song ends, you just repeat the words, he loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, how he loves. And I put the guitar down, and daggone it, I cannot, it just, it hits me talking about it today. I put that guitar down, and I fell on my face, and I, I'll tell you, I had, never, I had never cried like that before that moment, and I have never cried like that since. And I always use the same word to describe it, because I don't know how to describe it any other way. It was as though something was being unearthed in me. Like there was a lot of stuff that I was carrying around that God said, we're done with this. We're going to get it out. And we got it out that night. And I remember... This is going to sound so strange, but I remember 
when I was kneeling in the presence of God that night, he brought all these memories of my life to mind. And they were not good memories. They were memories that I wish I didn't have. Memories that if I could choose, none of them would be a part of my story. And I know that I'm talking to people who have all kinds of memories like that. But in every single one of these memories, and I could see myself, you know, as this younger man, I, I could see this cloud around my head. And I knew that that cloud represented not just the presence, but the love of God. And what pierced me in that moment, it, I mean, it just broke me clean in half. It was like God was giving me the tangible evidence all these years later that even in those moments, even in the hardest times of my life, I could see now that not only was he with me, but he loved me the whole time. And I said those words out loud. Those are the, those are the only words that I, could, that I could physically produce. As I was sobbing, I just kept saying, you loved me the whole time. You loved me the whole time. And when I got up from the carpet, there was this it was a puddle of tears. I think I lost about two pounds of water weight. But I tell you that story because what happened to me that night is exactly what Paul was praying the Ephesian believers would experience. And it's what Scripture says every single person listening to me right now can experience. It's a life-changing, deeply personal encounter with God. And when you hear me or other leaders at this church, when you hear us say that we exist to see lives transformed by Jesus, just so you know what all of this is about, this, that's what it's all about. That's why we burn so many calories on these services and the way that we do, why we do, what, how we do, all that kind of stuff. It's about bringing one more person to that place where the love that Jesus Christ has for them goes from something they simply understand to something that they actually stand under. Because I'll tell you, when the love of Jesus, and I can't say this without getting emotional, when the love of Jesus gets driven down deeply into your heart, it'll change you like nothing else in this world can, and it will prepare you for absolutely anything. If there's nothing else that you get from this teaching, I hope, I hope you walk away knowing that you need this more than anything else. You get this thing. You get this right. The rest of your life is details. And my hope through this series is that God would bring you to that place. So would you bow with me? I just want to read this prayer that Paul wrote for the Ephesians over us. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant us according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts, in our hearts, through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.